Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. I'm Jason Sachs. I'm Amir Malikpour. And we are discussing Omega the Unknown, number two, from May 1976, written by Steve Gerber and Mary Screenas, illustrated by Jim Mooney. Welcome to Hell's Kitchen. Poor James Michael Starling. He came down from the mountains, from his little paradise, and he's been plunged into uh, the hellish New York circa 1976. Oh, yeah, yeah. I just, when you said coming down the mountain, I got the vision of like Moses coming down the mountain and seeing like, oh my God. But I got this mental image too. Like he had been in a kind of a heaven and he's plunged into a kind of hell. Yeah, yeah. Kind of. So yeah, let's, let's, I'm sure you have lots of notes. Should we start from the beginning and kind of work our way through it? Yeah, yeah. I I have some notes for almost every page, I believe. It starts with the aftermath of issue one. The hero, I'm not going to call him Omega, the hero uh-huh. had been attacked by the uh, robot or mechanical creature. And James Michael shot the shot from his hands these Omega beams, I guess you can call them. And uh, they're dealing with the aftermath of that uh, both James Michael and the doctor are just confused by what happened. Yeah, it's a... Uh... So just kind of getting the start, starting off, I got the thought of like, well, the, the note that I put in there, it's like, I think in the beginning it says, welcome to Hell's Kitchen in big titles on the first page. Mm-hmm. And I actually looked up and said, why do they call it Hell's Kitchen? Uh, I didn't even know. I mean, I knew it was in New York. I know like Frank Miller has talked about it. You know, that's where Daredevil is and everything. But I didn't know that it's a district in Manhattan and somebody who doesn't live in New York would view that at Manhattan as like this really rich area. And so like, I was just, it was just kind of interesting for me to like, when we're, when they're introducing, he's going to get into Hell's Kitchen, start living there. What does it mean? Like, what's that whole idea of Hell's Kitchen? Is it just because Gerber lived there and he knows about it? Or does it mean that like, amidst all of this like wealth and Manhattanites or whatever, there's this part where like people ignore and don't think about, which is like the worst part of the city is a part of a district of the richest area of district. So now Health Kitchen is apparently very gentrified. Yeah. But in the letters page of issue two, Screenas writes a piece. And she says, let me tell you what it's like down there. It's right near 42nd Street in the Times Square district. I'm sure you got them Broadway theaters, but mostly you got sleazy bookstores, movie houses, Degenerates cruise the streets 24 hours a day. Floozies, hypesters, con artists, addicts, winos, bums, shopping bag ladies. Everywhere you look, there's an eye missing, an arm, a leg, twisted bodies with oozing sores in doorways. People don't talk down there, they scream. Ninth Avenue leads downtown, right into the Lincoln Tunnel. The traffic is constant and the noise level is air splitting. Exhaust fumes mixed with the odor of human waste, rotting fruit, soggy cow, soggy cardboard, cow blood dripping from the meat market deliveries, booze on every breath and cooking fumes from Mexican, Chinese, Italian, Greek, Indian restaurants, as many different bakeries. The kids there would curl your hair. You don't see many of them and the ones you do are off of the leash and tough. They got concrete postage stamps for playgrounds, but they'd rather play chicken with the downtown traffic or get their vodka from tipping over blind cripples. So she's painting it as kind of a hell on earth. Also, 
I, can I go into a little bit of my own experience in a similar area? Yeah. Um, so I've lived in, I lived in San Francisco for a while, not in the bad area. I lived actually off of an island off of the city, but I used to do stand-up comedy. And uh, a lot of times when you do stand-up and you're starting out, you don't really have a lot of opportunities to perform. So you'll perform anywhere, anybody that'll have you. And so, and also you'll also produce your own shows. And so if you're a stand-up, you don't have that much money. You want to rent space is very expensive in San Francisco. So there's an area in San Francisco called the Tenderloin, which again is becoming gentrified now. But when I started doing stand-up, there was a lot of area, you know, it's a, the description that that um, uh, the Mary Screens mentioned is exactly like what I would view Tenderloin as. And you'd walk around and, um, but it's not all hellish because you heard their food, there's ethnic food, there's mm -hmm. food that like, it's cheap, but it's delicious, probably. I mean, I, and it's delicious, it's cheap, um, it's different. There's a different kind of, so you get the bad because, because it's so cheap, you get a lot of drug addicts, you get a lot of um, poor, you know, obviously with poverty, a lot of things come in, but you also get like folks who may not be able to live in the city who get to live, who are all, who have something positive to offer, you know, mm -hmm. of course you'll have the liquor stores and the drug deal. I mean, I've seen drug deals, the human excrement, part of it is because a lot of drug addicts can't hold it. Part of it is because in the city, if you're poor, there's no opportunity to go to the restroom. There are no restrooms. Like you're not going to a restaurant. You're not, you know, I mean, I'm not saying poor, but you know, the drug addicts essentially. Right. So it's interesting to think about because as we delve into Hell's Kitchen, I think we're going to get to know a little bit him living there. There is a positive. You think about like Amber and Ruth and James Michael moving in with them. I mean, there's still people there who are not scum of the earth or, you know, who aren't from the wrong side of the tracks that live in these areas. And then obviously there are drug addicts. And then we're also, there's a cameo, interesting cameo special. It's, we'll talk, I don't know if you're talking about Hulk, but it's really interesting the way he was presented to us. So yeah, because it's a it. it's a vital area of the city, right? There's so much going on there. And it, it's like what a lot of people think of when they think of New York, which is just this bustling metropolis with all these restaurants and bodegas and people on the streets all day long. Uh, it's got rats and it's got cockroaches, but it's also got this kind of vitality. Yeah, and also it's it it has people living there who are good people, good solid people who have no other choices. Mm -hmm. And and also like when they talk about drug addicts and like, you know, the scum and stuff like that, there are people who have, who have a lifestyle bestowed upon them that at times wasn't really, was out of their control. For example, when we encounter the Hulk mm -hmm. uh, or uh, Bruce Banner, who's naked on the ground with purple pants, which I didn't recognize him to be. And people are making comments, hey, look at that like derelict or that, you know, why is he there? And like, let's get rid of him, get out of, you know, stop sleeping on the street, you know? And then it's really because he just came out of his Hulk body and he couldn't, yeah, anyway. So it's interesting stuff. So that really caught my eye when the, the Hell's Kitchen part came up. Yeah, everyone kind of looks at, everyone just ignores it when Bruce gets kind of beat up and, and abused too, because it's just an everyday thing. But yeah, he just had that forced upon him. He just had the circumstance that, kind of pushed him to that place in his life. 
Yeah, I mean, in an interesting way, this is kind of showing the nobility of people as well as the kind of downside of people, you know, the people at their, at their best and at their worst. Yeah. Uh, because or we have Amber and Ruth who are legitimately caring for James Michael. And there's allusions here too that Ruth had gone through some really hard times, which is what brought her to this lower level, not lower <laughs> level, but brought her to the streets kind of, brought, brought her to this neighborhood. So there's, there's a lot going on there. And uh, it kind of builds character. I think it's so interesting that James Michael had been really in, in kind of a paradise too. We just both talked about that a bit. You know, he was up in the mountains. He was shielded from everything. He was homeschooled by his parents. He really was living in, in what he didn't realize was a very protected place. And to have him come down into this much more human place really helps him become more of a fully fledged person. Yeah. And you'll see when he starts school, things get even more complicated for him. Mm -hmm. yeah this this is an interesting issue i will say about this issue i'm realizing how much less and less i care about superheroes and i more and more i care about the stories about the people i love the scenes with amber and uh ruth <laughs> and less so the superhero part however the superhero parts were really interesting to really start to think about other aspects of the story well i think that gerber and screen is here don't really tell a superhero story either. They we have mean. Electro on page five or four, depending on which version you're looking at, page five of the original. But he's in shadows the entire time. And he's this taunting kind of nasty piece of work. He almost feels like he's of the neighborhood. He's another kind of feral creature in a way. There's nothing yeah. especially super heroic about him. And when we see the Hulk in the latter half of the issue, he's kind of a mess, right? He's just basically saying, leave me alone and I'm, I'm mad. I just can't get out of my own way in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have commentary about all three of them, which is interesting. Did you want to talk about um, the first few pages where the doctor is examining James Michael or did you want to talk about the superheroes? What, what would you prefer? Yeah, let's be a little more disciplined about it, sure. No, 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 I mean, what, is, what is your preference? I'm no, let's, let's go from the beginning because I think it's going to build as we go through the issue. Oh, cool. Um, I have some notes. Uh, I yeah, I just want to say I love the narration in this, it's the story mm -hmm. as well. I don't know how it, how it struck you, but the narration here is literate, kind of humorous, very neutral, but also like very knowing at the same time. Mm -hmm. I think the combination of Gerber and Screenus, and I think she did most of the caption writing based on some of the oh, evidence here kind of reflects this real interesting intelligence mm -hmm. I, it, it's verbose but it's not too verbose it's also very literate feeling mm. i mean i like the, the captions but honestly like what stood out for me was the dialogue in this case of the doctor and james michael mm -hmm. um so one thing again like going back to like how he's not really mourning his parents' death uh, on page two where the doc's like, you know, I guess I'm concerned about you, you know, not warning him. Or what about you feel your feelings around them? And, and James Michael throughout the book has kept on saying, well, they were nice to me. Yeah, they're nice to me. And the way it sounds to me, it's like when you try, <laughs> when I say something like that, 
I'm, sometimes I'm trying to like kind of lower them in my opinion. I mean, I don't know if that's what he's doing. Like, for example, if you're like, you had a coworker who was a nice person, but didn't do a good job when they were fired. You all say, you know, I really like the guy. He's a really great guy, but uh, just wasn't good at what they did, you know? And this is the same thing. Or like when you do comedy, you're like, well, you know, there's really nice guy, not funny, but really nice, you know, not a funny comedian, but really <laughs> good nice stage guy. presence. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, is that what he's doing? Or he's like, he's trying to come up with a positive that he doesn't really care for. Probably not. Um, and yeah. I think it's intended more to be like robotic in a way mm. where, oh. you, you know, he, he didn't get warmth. He just got kindness from them. Yeah. Okay. Um, I actually own page two, the original art to page two of this issue, oh. by the way, it's one of two pieces of art, art I've ever gotten in my life collecting comics where I pulled the art out of the envelope and actually got weak in the knees. Like when I, when I realized I, I actually said to myself, oh my God, oh my God, I actually own this page of original art. Oh, wow. It was like so deeply moving to me to own this. And Mooney's art is just gorgeous, even better in the black and white. Mm. Couple things on this sequence too. First of all, you notice that James Michael hardly talks. Dr. Barrow does almost all the talking. Yeah. And I think that's interesting too. Like. James Michael is referring to them this maybe the same referring to the doctor maybe the same way as he did to his parents. Mm. And secondly, the storytelling here, and I'm going to say this all throughout the run, Moody's storytelling is immaculate. Like you know, some panels two and three on page two, he keeps the same perspective as we're getting a slightly different background on James Michael. So the eye is always fixed on where it needs to be. And then on the fifth, uh, yeah, one, two, three, fourth panel, they're still in the same position, but the camera has changed angles a bit. So the movement is just extraordinarily nice there. Mm. And moving over to page three, the top sequence, we have Dr. Barrow sitting comfortably in the chair and the ghost of the hero behind him. So interesting to see whether that's a metaphor for the hero or the actual hero is, is an interesting question. You can kind of read it either way, but it's like a ghostly image that James Michael has in his head. And then we focus on the doctor and the image is kind of cropped out of the background. Mm -hmm. So as James Michael sits down, it's like he has the hero in his head and then he focuses on the doctor. Mm -hmm. very subtly showing the the perception and then the next two panels we get these extreme close-ups on james michael and dr barrow like extreme close-ups like their faces are cut off one eye is cut off on each of them mm -hmm. so you just see feel like there's this intense connection between them james michael has these very soulful eyes mm -hmm. so i think mooney's storytelling and i'm going to talk about this throughout the issue is just extraordinary here Yeah, I mean, I actually did not see the hero in the back window, uh, but it makes sense because I think in the previous page, he was looking at him getting examined. Mm -hmm. But I think you're on point that it could be just like a, uh, like a symbol of him kind of looking into James Michael because how was he, he was looking at them, him getting examined physically and now he's coming into like the, 
the therapist's office to like look through that window and then he's gone. Like, so it's interesting. Um, I didn't know one thing about this page. The first thing I wrote was I thought this was a really creepy page. I don't mm. know if this is, I, I don't know if it's necessarily meant to be, but those panels three and four on page page three, where like you get like it, it actually it's out of a horror film almost like where like it looks like James, if you don't read the dialogue, you're like, oh my God, James Michael looks horrified. And then the doctor looks really creepy too. Like it's just like like almost like like a reveal of a bad guy. And in the beginning, he does say some weird language. He, I mean, I don't think he really means anything, but he's all like, I like you, James Michael. Do you like me? <laughs> it's, a, uh-huh. Uh-huh. it's a little creepy, you know, way of talking to a kid. And then they also force him to go to bed at the end of this page. They're all like, yeah, he tells the orderly, like, get him to get him to bed, you know, lob him into bed, Chester. You know, it's like, he can't just say, okay, it's time to go to bed, James Michael. It's all go to bed. It's like, why don't you go to bed? And as opposed to like, lob him in the bed, Chester. Something about Dr. Barrow is creepy. You're right. He speaks a very kind of stilted way too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm not sure of what to make of that either. Well, what I also wrote down here is that, like, he said, like, James Michael, we study emotions, thoughts, and creativity. Creativity. What do you think about that? Like, it's just kind of creepy. And mm-hmm. to me, it's rather invasive, right, to try to study someone's emotion who's not there on their own volition. Like, I mean, James Michael is being taken care of there, but you're essentially imprisoning him as is evident by Chester lobbing him into bed, apparently. And you're trying to study his emotions, thoughts, and and like, it's very invasive to try to think about that. Even if it's like trying to read someone's mind, how they're acting and. Even more, Amir, he is, he's an orphan and there's no contact with the state or anything about giving him a place to live. Basically, he's just being held at the clinic. Yeah. Like he, James Michael has no power over his life at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is creepy as hell. Yeah. I have notes about next page too. That was an interesting page actually. Go ahead. So the Electro page. Usually when you think about a hero, a superhero book, I never noticed this until this page, but superheroes are the ones that are lurking in the background. They're the creepy ones. Like in this case, Electro is creepy in the background, sees the hero with the robot and like, you know, conference, you know, tries to steal the robot or does and for his own study. But usually like when a superhero is catching the bad guys, he's the one that's a creepy guy that's like looking around, like in the shadows, you know, trying to peer through everything. And in this case, it's the bad guy. And so it's just kind of like, it was interesting to me how it was like a switch of that, um, switch of that role, but not in the traditional way that you would think of switcher of the role of like the bad guy, good guy. In this case, from an action perspective, you see the bad guy acting just like a superhero except not a superhero. And then, and I have comments about um, what uh, the hero does afterwards. I'm gonna call him Omega here or whatever, the Enigma one, which is like <laughs> Enigma one or the, or the, the Omega hero, 
I have some comments about him later on as a superhero. Okay, let's get to that in a minute. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you make of the idea that Mooney draws Electro in the shadows? That in the entire part, entire sequence here on page four, we only see a silhouette. Um, I don't know. I thought maybe they're trying, I never thought about it. I didn't really think of it as like, oh, I thought it was like a, they're going to be, a, there's going to be a reveal later, even though like, if you know comics, you know, that's Electra or, if you know, Marvel comics, um, or if you know Spider-Man, I don't know if he's a niche villain, but um, I don't know. I thought it was maybe a reveal for later. Yeah, but there's like nothing to be gained by the reveal. I know. I, I, I wondered about that since the last time I read it, like, what is he trying to, what is Gerber and Mooney and Screen is trying to achieve with having this character in the shadows. I think I, I think you're onto something when you talk about it being like, you know, Batman surveilling somebody and then attacking them. He's just this kind of shadowy figure that's doing mysterious stuff or something. Yeah, I thought about that. Uh, I thought, oh, you know, but then it's like you, you know, I mean, I don't know if people, but you know exactly who it is. It's not really yeah. hiding anything. So maybe, actually, you know, that's a good point. I didn't think of that. That's a good point that you make in that, like, he is like Batman. He's like a certain type of a superhero. He, he's acting like a certain type of a superhero, like Batman or Moon Knight or I don't know who else. Mm -hmm. You know, like the street level or even Daredevil, who also lives here, I think. Yeah, it feels very street level. You're right. That's a good way of putting it. Um, yeah, and the fact it happens in a dirty alleyway is a nice segue to the next page. Mm -hmm. Well, one more thing I want to say is Electro's speech here is so different from anyone else's speech. Oh, yeah. He, he's just talking, he's kind of, you get the idea he's just like rattling these words off to himself, right? He's just babbling kind of non nonstop to himself. These are short, weird, not short, not weird, but short kind of quick sentences no big deal i'll tinker it i'm good with electrical stuff blah 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 blah. it's like he's almost trying to he, he's kind of keeping this internal narrative that's different from what we just saw from james michael or dr barrow and for that matter he sounds different from ruth and from amber you know it, it's so funny i didn't note this but i really noticed that that he's totally different to me it seemed kind of like like a dialogue from Quentin Tarantino. I mean, not exactly, but it's like, what's the rush, Jack? Up here, pretty boy, all right? But don't strain your eyes. <laughs> you, I don't care beans about, you know, like it's, it almost seems like he's like, it's like not poetic, but like iambic pentameter type <laughs> of thing. Like, he yeah. just, he's like speaking in like, I don't know, like, uh, like hip tone, like he's like a beatnik type of a hipster. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, right. He's just kind of rattling it off. And yeah, you almost match like a drums behind him. So no big deal. I'll tinker with it. I'm good with electrical stuff. Thanks. Could have done it without you. And then James Michael starts to discover the real world. Actually, can I say one other thing about that? Of course. Doesn't Spider-Man talk like that sometimes where he's all like, hey, hey he makes Ooh. jokes. Yeah. So there's a little bit of like a fish out of water kind of thing he's talking like he's in one kind of comic book but he's actually in another 
Well, he's, I think it's that subversion of, or reverse of superhero villain where like the villain is acting like a superhero lurking in the background. Super, mm -hmm. I mean, Spider-Man is the creepiest of all superheroes, if you don't know. Um, when I was a little kid and I wasn't exposed to the comics, I thought Spider-Man was Freddy Krueger when I had an action figure. I thought they were the same, like burned face or something. Oh, and so, wow. Like, huh. So it's like, um, it's creepy, right? He's in the background and he's like, has these quips, which are really annoying if you're, if he's a bad guy. And so like, interesting. Yeah, and he's, he likes to hang out on the top of buildings and jump down on people who are committing yeah. crimes and stuff. Yeah, minding their own criminal business. <laughs> so you're saying about the next page, though? I think the sequence when he moves in with Amber and Ruth is really powerful. This is suddenly James Michael getting exposed to the real world, and he's doing his best to deal with it, but he's really profoundly confused by what he's dealing with. Mm. they pass the, the the bum they pass the harassing guys they pass the feces on the doorstep they see the cockroach he has this tiny little bed space there's bars on the window it's like everything about it is completely different from what he experienced before mm -hmm. and if we go with this analogy of him going from heaven to hell I mean, literally to hell's kitchen right uh, this is this is him now, you know, at the gateway to hell. Yeah, there's even the massage parlor, which you know isn't actually a massage parlor. On panel three of the first page of the sequence. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I um, for me this would be heaven, but I lived in San Francisco, so <laughs> it's like you get to move in with two hip ladies uh in a hip area with good food <laughs> and yeah okay it's dirty i mean I, I wouldn't live here now but i'm an older person now but it's interesting that like um i think that i didn't notice those things i think the notes that i've took down were maybe like not really kind of out of the not maybe related to the superior the story one was a note at the end where he's thinking like i guess actually this is actually not like where he knows, noticed that why are there bars here? There are bars on the windows, kind of like a prison. Mm -hmm. And the note that I took down was really just like a commentary from Gerber's part of saying like, you know, because um, I think Amber says like, there are a lot of punks out there who, um, who come here to like try to steal stuff, even though there's nothing to steal. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was like interesting to see poor people in poor neighborhoods stealing from each other, even though there isn't much to steal. So like mm -hmm. that idea of that, and it's really like imprisoning people. Um, yeah, I think the imprisonment is actually, I just got that idea from you just coming up right now. And then finally, I was just going to say with that cockroach, this is just like a nostalgia thing. I think if you're of a certain age, at some point, we actually worried about the ozone layer. Yeah. I don't know if it's fixed now, but uh, it's just funny, like how this is like the, it dates the comic in a really fun way. Like I like it. It's really sweet to see like her complaining about aerosol. Is Ruth aware of the damaging layers of aerosol sprays in the ozone layer? Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't there like a comic book, comic publisher called Aerosol Publishing? Aerosol. Aerosol. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, there's a whole story there. They got the name from an air conditioning company. Oh, interesting. But Gerber in the in the reappearance of Guardians of the Galaxy in 1975, Gerber did a storyline with the uh, original Guardians of the Galaxy where the Earth had been destroyed because of damages to the ozone layer from aerosol sprays. Oh, interesting. So this is on his mind. He had written about this like a year before. Yeah, I, I mean, essentially, you know, climate change. Yeah. Concern around that, which is so. I'm, I'm going to move ahead because I, 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 I love our discussions, Amir, because you make me think of all these things I hadn't thought about before. So we talk about Alan Moore and Watchmen having these juxtapositions that add to the elements, right? Now mm-hmm. look at look at the last page we were just talking about. They're behind the bars. And then we flip to the next page and our hero is in front of these bars that are in front of Gramps's pawn shop. Yeah. So we're seeing James Michael behind bars and the hero in front of bars. James Michael is looking trapped. The hero is snapping the lock and walking in. There's a really interesting character reversal there. He's putting them in opposition to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't get that. I mean, I think I got the bar idea from you when you mentioned they're imprisoned there. Um, but I, I had I had different thoughts about this, these next two pages, which kind of like, I don't know if it blew my mind, but it was really fun to really think about. So I noticed, so he breaks into this pawn shop to steal some clothes. This is your hero. This is like, talk about reversal of character. Um, in one end, you see Electro acting like a superhero, like batman S or Spider-Man being creepy and then having, you know, puns and quibs. On the other end, you see your hero breaking into specifically, I think it says here, it's like he must alter his mode of dress to accomplish, you know, whatever he's trying to accomplish. So he's literally trying to steal some clothes. He breaks in and there are other robbers there. They think he's a superhero or they don't want to share the loot with them. So they get in the fight. The owner, the Gramps or whatever, comes in thinking this superhero is trying to save his store and actually helps him out with clothes. So really the intention of the hero or Omega hero or whatever is actually to steal, but he gets mistaken because of because he looks like an adult. He looks a certain way. Whereas in a kid like James Michael, um, doesn't really get any respect because of the way he looked. You know, it's a, it's always about what you look like or, or like what you get presented by, not really what you're doing in this case. Mm-hmm. Like Electra looks like a hero. Like if there was no dialogue, you would think that he's saving that robot that this bad guy tried to kill. Um, here, if there's no dialogue, you would think that he's seen those robbers and he's going to go stop them from robbing the pawn store. But no, he's actually like stealing stuff. And then Pop thinks that he's a hero because he didn't know his intentions. Just because he happens to be dressed like a hero. Yeah. Yeah, this this ambiguity of heroism versus villainy is like pervasive and so interesting, I think. It's something you really couldn't accomplish in, a, in another type of comic. Well, I guess actually in a very different way, we talked about this when we were talking about Orion and New Gods. Because Orion on the surface was heroic, but he was continually fighting his 
other side of himself. Here it's even more so, it, it, not more so, here it's, it, he's, the ambiguity of the heroes is, is different, but also really powerful. I think here, this is more similar to, for, I mean, to Watchmen in a way. Yeah. In a sense that like, the way we think about the comedian and Watchmen where like, he's a superhero to everyone else, but internally he's just a scumbag who gets off of like hurting people or whatever. I mean, that's not the, but in this case, I mean, Omega is not a scumbag. He doesn't get off on it. He, he needs to steal. So in a lot of ways, the setting, the interesting setting is you have poor people. Yeah, you're in a setting of Hell's Kitchen where there are a lot of poor people where people have to steal bread out of necessity. You know, like there's that whole idea of like in the old days, maybe 300 years ago, you get into prison for stealing bread and you shouldn't because that's a basic necessity. I mean, here in this case, he's stealing not because of out of evilness, but he is stealing. He is breaking the law. He's not a superhero. Mm -hmm. uh, or in a and so like it's interesting that like he gets to steal whereas then if it was somebody else if they look a certain way you know they're the hulk he would not be known as a superhero because he doesn't wear a shirt doesn't have shoes you know like that kind of thing he's outside of human morality yeah he's following his own morality i guess what i'm trying to say like he's got privilege he's he yeah he's given privilege because of the yeah. way he looks yeah because he was going to kill that criminal. <laughs> yeah, he's choking him out. He's like doing everything a bad guy would do. At the same time, he's the captions, which are clearly from his viewpoint, he's condemning them because they're not reflective, because these people don't think about their lives. He's mm -hmm. kind of, there's, there's deadness, ice in the sockets. A reflective surface has never been turned inward. That's mm -hmm. these guys who are who are stealing from Pops, excuse me, from Gramps's uh, pawn shop. He hates them in part. Uh, hates them. He 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 opposes them in part because they're not philosophical, mm -hmm. which is so odd. Sounds like somebody from a place of privilege condemning others who haven't been so lucky. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's that's the other thing. The captions are basically him looking down on our planet, saying they're not evolved. Yeah. Their problems are, it's in the previous page, he talks about how there are too many problems to be dealt with this, on, this, on this world. And then we get another connection between the hero and James Michael when the hero gets shot. Oh, yeah. He feels the pain feels the pain so there's a connection and a game james michael talks about the voices yes i i wrote a little bit about this one too or my thoughts around it in that he feels the pain physical pain of something happening to omega i'm gonna call him omega <laughs> but he doesn't have these emotional pains and i think part of it could be that you know as a teenager maybe you're going through some physical changes that kind of trump your personal emotional feelings. And so maybe he's not feeling it because he's going through these physical changes. So he is, he's feeling, but just in a, another, another century, century way. I don't know if that's the right way of saying. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing is it also just 
I started to think about Flex Mentello. Flex Mentello. Flex Mentello. Reminds me of Flex Mentello in that like Flex superheroes are like about power. So it's more like this one is like he thinks of it. So uh, I don't know how I'm trying to explain this properly, but like essentially the feelings that James Michael is feeling is a, from a physical sense. The physical feelings are akin to how one would feel mentally or emotionally. Uh, mm -hmm. That's just kind of, and because that's where the, that's a stage of life that he's in, the, the puberty. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. They kind of, his physical and emotional are so tied to each other. And in fact, like the physical feelings are what one would think he would be going through from an emotional sense. Interesting. You notice in the scene where, in the in the moment where he feels the sh the shooting on his shoulder, his face is in a, a mask, almost like a superhero mask. It comes from the light that he that is on there, but in that moment he looks like he's a, a teen sidekick. Oh yeah, yeah, like Robin. I did that came to my mind a few a little bit too. And then as he talks to Amber about this, both of their faces go into shadow. So he's a hero who's kind of moving back into the shadows. Mm -hmm. But that first panel is like, it's really, it's almost, I'm not sure how intentional it is. There's no way of knowing how intentional it is. But I, I interpret it that same way. Like he looks like there's a heroic look to him. I mean, I think it makes sense that he looks like us because if you're gonna put the top part of his head into darkness, why not cover his eyes too? But mm -hmm. in this case, you could see his eyes, which is kind of like a domino mask type thing. Just another intriguing piece. I mean, I, I've been talking, I talked a bit last week about reading this whole thing as a satire and superheroes. And it's kind of starting to feel like it plays out more throughout this issue yeah. too. So we move to the next page and there's Gramps taking care of our hero. And like, again, it's just an odd scene. Gramps has a thousand words of dialogue. Gramps, uh, our hero says nothing. There's not a caption to even say what's going in the hero's mind. So he can't be a robot because he's actually bleeding. So there, there's, there's a note. What'd you make of that whole scene? I think it's just the same note, as I said before, Gramps being kind of like a sap thinking Omega was there to help. I don't think he would be as helpful if he knew that, you know, Omega, the unknown guy, was trying to rob his store. Yeah. And then another juxtaposition, Gramps says, sure is nice to have somebody to talk to. Flip to the next page and Amber and James Michael are talking as they're walking through the streets. Mm-hmm. And another little subtle Watchman style connection. To me, this just shows Gerber's mastery of the comic page. He's writing with these juxtapositions totally attached to each other. It makes the flow of the story so powerful. Mm -hmm. And it's also subtle because, you know, Mooney's not a flashy artist, even compared to someone like Dave Gibbons. Mooney's like a lot more kind of, you know, traditional artist. But he pulls us off in such a subtle way. I mean, a lot of people would say that um, 
you know, Gibbons is not a flashy artist either. He's more of like a technical wizard, you know, and but not flashy where like like Neil Adams type thing. Or, mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, one more thing I wanted to say about the scene with Pops. Pops calls out, um, what nationally are you any what nationality are you anyway? And one of the interpretations because uh, of the hero, because he's got the curly hair and you know has kind of broad shoulders and, and all that, more, more the curly hair than anything, is and he could be seen as this uh, a true Jewish superhero. And where that's important is that if we see the hero in some way as a satire of Superman, then having him be a Jew like Siegel and Schuster, I think is really kind of symbolically important, as well as Jack Kirby and the other great Jewish creators of whom there were dozens in the golden age. They, they were all, you know, some of the greatest comic creators ever were Jews, but they never had a Jewish hero. Mm -hmm. And here's this hero he's enigmatic like he appears to be gentile excuse me he appears to be uh, jewish i'll just use that word but he he can't no one can actually come out and say that he still mm. has to kind of hide it in a way mm. i don't know if that's there but it's an interesting little subtext of the comments about his nationality and his curly kinky hair mm-hmm I mean, Superman, yeah, Superman is definitely has been compared to, you know, you know, uh, someone from the chosen people that comes and helps, you know, helps the rest of the folks. Yeah, I didn't necessarily get that. Um, but I think it's interesting. I, I, it's good to, I didn't understand. Yeah, it's a good, it's another viewpoint. I'm glad uh, you shared it. Because it's another way of comparing to Superman, because we've been talking about it, because Earlier in the book, I do have a note where uh, they refer to, um, you know, this, the hero as a, a hero in like a garish blue and red costume, which is basically kind of like what Super mm -hmm. and Superman's costume is basically a wrestler, right? That's why he has trunks and like, you know, he's a wrestler, like WWF, like professional wrestling costumes. Mm -hmm. It's garish, yeah. Then we come to the sequence you really like with Bruce Banner juxtaposed with Amber and James Michael getting an egg cream. Yeah, I think I mean I think the thing that stood out for me here was like Amber says like they see Omega right in the corner standing like with the clothes that Gramps have given them. And then Amber says like hey if you grow up to look like that I'll marry you. You know mm -hmm. it's like oh maybe that is him you know and like and then James Michael's all like, well, just because he looks that way, because <laughs> he um, just because I would look like him, you know, but it's interesting that like, you know, there's another illusion that they might be the same character or their connection. Yeah. And also shows Amber is just like such a full fledged character. So mm -hmm. much to her. But I like her describing the area and then I didn't even it didn't even get to me that that would be Bruce Banner, you know. The purple pants should have. <laughs> I just thought, oh, that's that's par for course in this type of area. <laughs> More stuff about the neighborhood too. They passed an adult bookstore, and they passed a thrift store. Shows how rundown Hell's Kitchen was at the time. Mm -hmm. And a and a loan shop too. Yeah, and then they some of the 
people start kicking the Hulk. Mm -hmm. I have a comment that I just noticed on the next page when he hulks out. Um, you know, when, when he comes into the restaurant and they start pushing him and he turns into a Hulk and he goes crazy and he's throwing out a newspaper stand. You could see in the newspaper stand, there's some comic books in there too. And there's a Hulk comic that the Hulk is pushing out. It's on page, um, I believe it's 14 panel four in the bottom. Oh, you're right. Yeah. That's a Hulk comic. Mm hmm. <laughs> huh. That's funny. In the scene where so Bruce is thrown into the shoved into the coffee shop where they're having the egg creams and James Michael starts hearing voices in his head again. Amber, I'm becoming dizzy in my mind. I can hear. And then he hulks out. So James Michael has this connection to people in crisis, it seems. Mm. They're still fighting the voices inside the green man. He's, he hears Bruce and the Hulk kind of fighting with each other. You know, could the voices be emotions? <laughs> yeah, I wonder, if, I wonder what they are. If they're the literal voices or they're the emotions he's fighting with. I think that's probably it. Like, because the robot mom said, like, ignore the voices. And in reality, you shouldn't be ignoring your emotions. So why would you ignore your, you know, your feelings? You know, maybe he's ignoring his feelings. That's a great insight because James Michael's all about suppressing his emotions, right? Everyone's always commenting about how he seems so emotionless. Yeah. And here's, here's a creature that can't fight its emotions. So yeah, interesting. Like he's seeing himself in it in some ways. This creature is all emotions and he's he's the opposite in a way. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. And then you wanted to talk about the fight scene. Um, no, I think if not, no, I just wanted to mention yeah, not, not necessarily. No, I don't have any notes on the fight scene. I think one thing I wanted to point out was, uh, you know, you'd mentioned this before, how um, there are a lot of characters with depth in this story. And just an allusion to Ruth's past and the guy that she knew in the past who's in jail now. And, you know, it's just kind of interesting how there's like more depth to the characters. I think mean, you'd mentioned that there's actually like compelling female characters in this book. And in fact, like those are the two characters that I'm more interested in, even more so than James Michael in this case. So mm -hmm. it just brings more, um, a better quality to this book that really like I would have gotten bored had it not been because of those two. No, they absolutely passed the Bechdel test too. They are completely independent women. And Amber's first thought is that, yeah, cool, I can make some money at least. Two superheroes, your lucky day. Mm -hmm. The fight scene is pretty straightforward, I think. It's, it's violent, it's, it's huge. Uh, the, the, more, the most interesting part of it to me is the narrative that's ongoing as, as the battle happens. Control has been regained, the organism in tune with its intellect. A priority of purpose above all else. 
you know, it's kind of like this, this very kind of robotic, almost overkill of narration. The pain may be suppressed until the objective is achieved. It's this weird kind of detached look at what's happening. Mm-hmm. Even while this enormous action scene is going on, they're still detached from, the narration is still detached from everything that happens. And like the hero, like the cop is talking to him his eyes are kind of looking away. He's looking in, a, in the, the medium distance. Like he's below his notice or something. Mm-hmm. The mind reorders itself, except the necessity of dying, if need be, to obviate further threat to the boy. Again, there's a connection. We just don't know what it is. And then he gets uh, kidnapped because Electra can't work that robot that he stole. And James Michael is unconscious, barely breathing on the floor of the coffee shop. Mm-hmm. Good story. It's a good book. Yeah, it's just a great issue, I think. And number three is actually, I think, I'm not going to spoil it at all. Number three has always been one of my favorite comics. Mm-hmm. Well, Any last thoughts on Omega 2? No, that's it. I think I poured my heart out on all this. <laughs> oh, thank you.